Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Stephen Palos is the chief executive officer of Charter. Charter stands for the Confederation of Hunting Associations of South Africa. As he self-describes in the podcast, he's almost the last domino in in all the hunting dominoes in South Africa. He represents the recreational hunter in South Africa, the guy that's on the ground that likes to go out, recreate in terms of hunting, and also really just putting meat and biltong, which is jerky, uh, in their households. I wanted to chat to Stephen because, one, he's been in the game for a long time, two, He's a part of this new coalition that's emerged out of South Africa called the Sustainable Use Coalition of South Africa, SUCO SA, that recently went to CITES in Panama and almost just sort of announced themselves. So I wanted to have Stephen on to just give him an opportunity to chat about one, who he is, two, his stance and what his thoughts are around hunting and the future of hunting in South Africa. And then three, talk a little bit about Suko and what their hopes are for the future. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me 
you said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. I'm guessing you've got a global uh, fraternity of people you deal with, so you know how to manage time zones. Yeah, and you know, I typically wake up most mornings to, I don't know, 100, 150 WhatsApp messages yeah. from everywhere in the world. And um, yeah, my Do Not Disturb starts at 9 p.m. and goes through 5 a.m. Perfect. Even though I wake up at 4.30 a.m. Mm. And so, yeah, when you texted me, I was like, I just want to make sure that uh, <laughs> this isn't a miscommunication. I would have been, if you had said, oh, I'm, I'm ready to go at 4.30, I would have uh, slapped some clothes on and, and came <laughs> hurtling upstairs with the dog. But um, Yeah, I, I, I was running around just trying to make sure I've got a spot here and opening doors so that when my dogs get disturbed, they can run out and bark outside um, and a few little other things like that. Well, looks like you are in your library. Um, yeah, it's kind of library this side and workshop that side and everything in between. And where's home, Stephen? I'm out on the West Rand in Randfontein. Just out, I've got a small holding just outside of Randfontein. Okay, okay. I was just in Joburg. You were passing through. I think you had a few visits you did around town while we were all sitting in Panama, I think. Yes, that's right. That's right. You guys were sitting in Panama. I came over to Joburg. I spent some time in Joburg. And I got one aunt left in Johannesburg. Uh-huh. And um, she can't be. She's not very very far from you. She lives in Northcliffe. Northcliffe is just west of Joburg. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And um, did you say you were west or east of Joburg? I'm far west. So Ranfantina is... South of Krugerstorp. My place is just outside. Of oh, Port. right, right, definitely. Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely far west. And um, no, they went down to Morgan's Bay and attended the Custodians AGM, yeah. and then went into Zim and Zambia to to do the filming that we needed to film. So um, had some phenomenal times. Got heat stroke. <laughs> it was brutal. That's brutal. A, it's a hard time to be up in here, going into the, the the more northerly regions. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I was worried about my cameraman. They got back to the UK and they were both sick as dogs. And I was like, you guys better check if you've got malaria or tick bite fever or something like that. Because yeah. one guy had a nasty wound on his leg and both had significant fever and headaches and whatnot. But they seem to have cleared up. So whatever they had, so it's much, gone now. So much doing the rounds at the moment. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, uh, Stephen Palos, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast, my friend. Thank you. Uh, you want to give a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do and why we have you on? Or maybe not why, just who you are and what yeah. you do. Why you have me on, well, we'll figure out if that was worthwhile as we go, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> what I do, um, currently I am the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of a South African-based NGO called CHASA, the acronym, which is the Confederation of Hunting Associations of South Africa. 
and uh, that is a, a full-time position that I've had since 2016. Prior to that, I was on the Exco as a chairman and a, and a vice chair, and, and previously to that, a board me, uh, member. Uh, Charza represents 23 independent hunting or related associations, uh, and it's a confederate body of those 23 independent associations that exists for the last 41 years to represent at the national level on, on issues of collective concern and, and importance. So dealing with the legislative issues around firearm ownership and hunting, and uh, obviously lobbying and uh, all the things that go with defending hunting, the Charles uh, vision statement is the freedom to hunt. So it's quite a simple and straightforward vision statement, and obviously that involves in South African context uh, the ownership of firearms predominantly as well, because the two go hand in hand. And then second to that, the other hat I wear is, as the currently the vice chairperson is an organization that we drove and got going and formally uh, started in May last year, which is a coming together of nine founding members uh, in an organization we call SUCO SA, which is the Sustainable Use Coalition of Southern Africa. So what we did there is we drew in different parts of the greater wildlife sector, including the Wildlife Ranching Association, the Professional Hunting Association of South Africa, FASA, um, and a few others such as the SA Wing Shooting Association, NatShoot, which is also a local hunter-orientated organization like Chaza is, but very big uh, organization as well, True Green Alliance of Ron Thompson, who I'm sure you're familiar with, um, the South African Falconry Association, and who else have we got in that? There's nine founding members that came together to form okay. the SUCO. And uh, it was under that banner that we went recently to CITES, the first time we've used that brand at an international level. Uh, highly effective. And uh, so that's the other hat I wear. I'm vice chair of that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply of that initiative, which we hope is going to do great things for our purposes in the future, all of us. Sure, sure, sure. It, what, is, Chaucer, is, the, is Chaucer the original sort of overarching body for, for hunting associations in South Africa, or did FASA come before Chaucer? I think I feel like Chaucer came before FASA. Yeah, the, the actual oldest hunting associations in the country uh, remain as individual associations, and that's the South African Hunting Association, uh, South African Hunting and Game Conservation Association. They don't fall into the Tarza okay. family. They did way back until about 2004, I think they left. Um, KwaZulu Natal Hunting Association, who is a Tarza member, is 66 or 67 years old now. Um, wow. But it was 41 years ago that. A bunch of these got together and formed this umbrella body to collectivize some things. And since then, some have joined and others have left. But Charza's carried on through with its core business and its membership. So we're a bit fractioned. And of course, this is only dealing really with the local hunter interests. We are not a professional hunter. Correct. 
and we're not about ranching as Chaza. We literally deal with the local own use recreational. As yeah, you're yeah, for the recreational hunter in South Africa, right? Often called the hunter, but we're not too fond of that term. But the person who hunts for himself and pays to hunt in most instances for himself. So as a, you know, it's funny. I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. For those that don't know, eight and a half million people. It's probably 10 million people today. Um, you know, and I grew up to a family that was steeped in hunting heritage. Like they, my grandfather immigrated to Mozambique in the, in the 50s, lived the heyday of Africa in the 60s. Revolution hit Mozambique mid-70s. For someone like me, I didn't even know what hunting was available, right? And I was a young boy growing up. My dad wasn't in it. He was in, you know, he was just a businessman. It's 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 interesting that there is an organization like that in South Africa. That there's such a a strong, even the, the as you said, KwaZulu Natal's been around for sixty seven years. There's a heritage of hunting in South Africa. It's not just, and there's probably a heritage of hunting in most places. It's just when you get in a city environment, you just don't know about it. Yeah, I, I suspect we probably didn't have very different. Upbringings. I don't know which part of Joburg were you living in at the time. Where were you schooling? I I went to high school at uh, Sacred Heart College, OBS. The the one there there uh, in um, uh, what's in observatory observatory. Yeah, that's very near where I grew up. I grew up in Kensington, so a suburb away. Oh, jeez. So I had a listen. I grew up in Twenty Four Ernest Street Observatory. I I played um, I played soccer against. Bedford View, Bruma was our stomping ground. Yeah, that's where we went with our BMX bikes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I think from that perspective, we were much the same. I was blessed that my father did hunt, but not more than twice a year. And then he was a, purely a wing shooter, and it was a one-day affair. Um, I come from Greek heritage on his side. His father was a Cypriot. And he ran, ran a legal practice, a sole practitioner in Joburg. And he had a few clients that were keen on wing shooting. It is a bit of a Greek thing mm. in, in South Africa, for those who understand our cosmopolitan history. Yeah? Um, and the Greeks and the Italians and the Portuguese do like a bit of shooting and hunting as well. And that was my upbringing with hunting, were these two great big events that happened. Generally one in the winter and then one around this time of the year when we took some cake and other gifts out to the farmer that was giving us access and he would usually let us have And where did you do that wing shooting? Say again? Where where did you do the wing shooting? We were mostly going, there was a farmer out Kralingstadt Way, which is near Standerton, you could say in the direction of Durban from Joburg. Um, Okay. Around that area, they had one or two farms that my dad and his few mates and of course, as a youngster, I'm talking my primary school years already, um, they almost had to keep it secret from me because I'd get so excited that I'd be puking my lungs out the night before in anticipation of this event. <laughs> um, it was such a big deal. Um, but my dad was a very frugal hunter. Um, the other frustration he did, he kept his old 12-gauge in his box under the bed. And uh, I used to always take it out and dry fire the thing to bejesus and back every day that I could. Those years, it wasn't a frowned upon thing to do. But we'd lead up to this great big hunt and he'd have six cartridges in the box. And I'd be nagging him to get to a gun shop to buy some cartridges. And he said, but I only need six guinea fowl. I don't need more than six cartridges, you know. Of course, as a youngster, you want to go there. It's about quantity. It's not about quality. So 
I'm that's right. Very that's right. And then in my that's right. just as I matriculated in, in, in early '82, I just finished school. One of his old childhood mates, who was a rifle hunter, um, old um, Rup, Uncle Rupert Bernard, this guy said to me, "You know, Stephen, you've grown up now. It's time to stop that scattered gun nonsense, and I need to teach you some things about precision hunting." Uh, we're going to organize that you come with to Roybok Kral and shoot something like an Impala or a Warthog. I mean, that was, that was like winning the lottery for me to even hear that. Mm. And, uh, well, I was hooked, line and sinker after that. Uh, I was supposed to be studying. I couldn't concentrate on studies after I discovered such things existed. Um, it was the beginning of my downfall, I suppose. Um, yeah, I asked about where you, you wing shot because the only time I got to hunt with my grandfather and my father were pigeons and doves on sunflower fields outside of Brackpan. Ah, okay, yes. That was fairly common. And a guy and called still, Yanni. Obviously, that's a big thing today. Um, the guys do it, unfortunately. Ammunition has become rather expensive for the guys who are passionate about that. So you... Um... So that 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 passion of yours, it's it's one of the I guess it's one of the reasons for why you know sitting in the CEO of Charza right now is you know young boys around the country having that same feeling, wanting to do the same thing. You don't really want to you know you're fighting for that that opportunity for those boys right or those girls boys and girls. Yep. it's a lot easier now. Um, you know. When I started, what do you mean? It's a lot easier now. Well, when we went out in those days, I mean, I I remember as vividly as I'm looking at you right now, the first time on one of those bird hunts that I actually stumbled in in the maize rows. Uh, I was stumbling through some maize rows, and the next minute I was staring face to face at about 25 meters with a steenbuck. And you know, at that stage, that was not something you saw in South Africa. It was a mm. rarity. You know, we used to rub a neck when we would go on a drive in the countryside and see meerkats on the road or guinea fowl in the field. Uh, the explosion in game numbers since the 80s until now and game farms is absolutely phenomenal. It's now really, we are spoiled for choice in this country. It's not to say that it's cheap, but it's certainly not, it's no more expensive a part-time year than if you were a bit of a passionate golfer or some other similar type of, of hobby. Um, and it's very accessible, of course. I mean, there's, there's thousands of game ranches available. Um, finding them is, is a question, really, of shopping for them now in, in untold amounts of magazines and other media that's available. So it's a lot easier in that regard. Mm. You know, mm. I had very few friends that had an interest in it because, again, they didn't know it existed. I did have one or two school friends that seemed to have a bit of an outdoor knowledge and sense of it. And we used to shoot pellet guns on the copies in Kensington and that type of thing. And from that, learned a bit about .22s and things in the young days. But nowadays, it's not uncommon for youngsters in South Africa to be on multiple species um, by the time they're getting out of primary school. Um, mm. That's what's happening here. And Obviously, that was the, the wildlife revolution, the ownership of game in private hands and the expansion of game ranching as uh, per se and that great big bogeyman of fences. But unfortunately, or fortunately, in, in South Africa or in Africa, you've got to put something behind a fence if you want to own it and you want to preserve it and you want to promote it. Um, 
and and it's really it's it's given us tremendous opportunities that didn't exist back in my in in my youth and probably your youth to a degree. I think you're a little bit younger than mm. me, but probably not too much. So, but you remember <laughs> it from that sense. Yeah, I was offered. Um, I know I was this 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 buddy of my grandfather's Yanni in Brackpan. I, I can't remember Yanni's last name, either Fanikak or something like that. I'll I'll have to ask my mom. But Yanni. I remember walking into Yanni's like trophy room and it was like a kid's bazaar. It was to me, it was like the room that I wanted to go to all the time. Yeah. He had, and he would show us stuff like here's a, a buffalo hoof ashtray mm. and they would be in there smoking their cigarettes in the room. Yeah. And he showed me his safe with all the guns. And to me, like that was amazing. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, he was like, we need to go hunting. We need to go up to, you know, wherever it was in the, in the northern Transvaal at the time and shoot a harder beast or something. like. I can't remember exactly what he wanted us to shoot, but we never, got, we never got it done, unfortunately. We never, never got it done. I never got to hunt with my grandfather. I never got to hunt with my father properly until he came to the States. My father came to the States once and we shot, uh, we went hunting for white-tailed deer. So at least I got that uh, experience with him. Um, but you're right. I think a lot of people forget that, that the, the environment for hunting in South Africa today, just given the, the diversity, number one, and quantity yep. of wildlife that is available. And as you said, there's so many ranches, just like, you know, there's so many little ecotourism places now everywhere, right? It's just, the, it, it's a great environment for someone to want to start hunting in South Africa. Yep. Uh, we, we are we are blessed Jay, in that regard and uh i think the priority still remains uh, the the more humble antelopes and for meat predominantly and all that but everybody has aspirations to to up the game and take bigger and better trophies uh make more of their hunting and as i say well i grew up without it being a common thing and now my entire circle of friends and where my youngsters went to school yeah, in Ranfontein, if I went to stand on the side of a cricket or rugby field to, to chat, all the dads were standing around talking hunting. That's what we spoke about. And it's, mm. it's, it's a different scenario than what we, that I was used to as a youngster. What are, what are the challenges of Charter then? If, if you've got this, you've got a very wide open opportunity for hunting, it doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere, especially in the recreational sense for the South African. What are your challenges then? You know, Robbie, I think our biggest challenge as Charza is the future. And we're blessed as Charza in that we do not, of all the game, of all the players in the game, we probably sit with the domino right at the back of the queue that's going to fall mm -hmm. one day. Um, mm -hmm. But I think what we can take a lot of pride in as Charza is we've recognized that. And we've realized that the best way to make sure we never get to our domino is to go and have a look at which dominoes at the front of the queue and try and help that one. Which is one of the reasons why we drove the formation of the Sustainable Use Coalition, for instance, is that we know the best way to keep the fight from our door is to keep the stuff going out there that is under threat. Keep that going and look after it and preserve it and work with the correct stakeholders, uh, philosophically aligned stakeholders. I'm not going to lie to you. There's big diversity in opinion as to what's the right and wrong thing to protect and what should not be protected and what should be protected. We took the, the most uh, expansive view of that as Charza. 
Mm. And we said, you know mm. what, if it's legal and sustainable, we will protect it and defend it, provided the people in, in the game come to the party honestly and openly and also look to be good fellow travelers in the fight. And mm -hmm. it took us a long time. The idea was birthed in my head in 2016 when CITES was hosted in South Africa. And I met through Ron Thompson, a gentleman named Eugene Lapont that heads up an international NGO, the IWMC. And he had this idea of, of getting different sustainable use uh, organizations to work closer together on a global scale, because he's, he was a former secretary general of, the, of, of CITES and he understood the threats way beyond just the hunting. We're very narrow and focused on hunting, but, but CITES affects a lot of other things too. And he understood this and explained it a bit to me. And I recognized then that we need to broaden our alliances. But there was divisiveness at the time in 2016. The captive breeding of lions was a divisive issue. The uh, intensive breeding of game generally was a divisive issue. The color variant issue was very high on, uh, in the debate space. And we were taking expansive and defensive views of those practices. And others were taking narrower views of it. But from then till now, we nurtured this thing and found the people we could work with and formed that coalition. Mm. But Chaza does still sit, I would say, in the comfort zone. Our biggest bringer of member base, in fact, is the threat against firearm ownership. If it wasn't for the threat of mm -hmm. firearm ownership, we would probably struggle to find members in South Africa on, because there's no apparent threat to the hunting, which is a sad fact because we would like our members to recognize that hunting is under threat. They're just not feeling it because it's not close yet. Well, that's the thing, right? I think that is a general sentiment in hunting generally worldwide. It's like, well, nothing's really happening right now, so why should I even be involved? You know, when people look at Blood Origins and they're like, hey, what you do is great, but, you know, why should we get behind you right now? I'm like, well, now's the time to get behind us because we're putting out message right now that's changing perceptions around who we are as hunters and what hunting is doing. And when it comes to the ballot box one day or something happens, all of a sudden they've got things in their brain that remind them, oh, hunting isn't that bad. Like, oh, that doesn't make any sense because I saw this piece of message from Blood Origins. And it's a proactive mechanism, right? I think the hunting industry has been so reactive for so long. We've been in a closet mm. And all we, the only time we come out the closet is when someone rips the door open, smashes yep. us in the nose, and we come running out. Yep. It's a big problem. I, I would put, to a degree, the apathy of hunters, and to an extent, I would say, a degree of self-interest. I wouldn't call it selfishness, but a bit of self-interest of people in the commercial side, whether they're ranching or professional hunting, outfitting in particular, uh, are probably the two single biggest concerns I have, because those are within our side of the fence. Our, the fight we have to fight on the other side of the fence, the anti-people, the anti-use, uh, the animal rightists and that type of thing, is an easy thing to understand. Um, it's our own internal side that concerns me, is that few enough people are prepared to step up to the plate and help on an ongoing and sustainable way. You'll always get assistance if there's an issue. Um, it's, it's peculiar. I can always find my members to throw money into a, into a kitty for a court case. But if we have to go and do advocacy and lobbying work somewhere, 
which is low-key and often under the radar, that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to excite people as much. And actually, that's the only way to avoid it ever coming to a head is to constantly do that. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's wonderful to mm-hmm. have uh, organizations like yours, which do such a good mm-hmm. job of, of supporting this essential element of the health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I wish I'd known about your firearms advocacy um, as we were transitioning out of South Africa. I got... I got my grandfather's 270 Seiko and 375 Holland Holland Magnum out, and they were under my name. But my, my father had a side-by-side, and this is to your bird hunting heritage, he had a side-by-side Davidson yeah. shotgun that my grandfather bought in 1920 in northern China in Manchuria, and it had the had the the stamp of his license, hunting license was it was a uh, one of those um, it was a wooden stock, so it was blazed into the wooden stock. That was your license. Yeah, okay. that's an interesting way to do it. And uh, it was the first gun that I used to mm. shoot pigeons out in Brackpan. And because my the gun wasn't in my name, and I was already in the United States, and at that time you had all the changes in the gun laws happening in South Africa. Mm-hmm. My father refused to give up the gun and so being my father he took a sawzall he took a hacksaw to the butt hacksawed the butt off i've got the butt here in a little case and then took an angle grinder to the barrels and put two holes in the barrels and then handed the gun in and said i do not want to be a legal gun owner anymore there was a lot of sad happenings in that period of time with that change to our gun laws. And I, I, I was a little bit of a newbie at the time in terms of my current or, or more recent interest in bigger bore rifles. Um, I didn't have any clue about them. And the people were just giving them away yeah, and handing them in for destruction. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was ridiculous. I bought a few rifles of my own at the time, but I, I, hadn't, I hadn't yet realized the, the 416 Rigby's and 404 Jeffries of this world had, had relevance. Um, look, it's a while back. That was about 2004 and 5 that it was at its worst. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember going into a gun shop as I was trying to get my guns out, saying, would you buy these guns from me? And the guy laughed at me. Yep. I said, why are you laughing at me? He goes, let me show you something. Yep. And he walked me into his safe and there probably were 10,000 guns yep. just stacked. Yeah. And uh, it was very sad, and they were sadder for me as a few opportunities lost, I'm afraid. Oh, I could imagine. Imagine the opportunities nowadays. Yep. Like the, amount, the, the kinds of guns that you could have got yep. for the prices are just yep. Oh, yep. unbelievable. Unbelievable. So... You know, Charles is the is the federation uh, that that represents the recreational hunter, and you, and you said you wanted to do something a little bit more proactive, right? You wanted to do something that was a little bit more at the head of the line, see what you can do, and so you formed the Sustainable Use Coalition with eight or nine individuals. And I picked up on one thing that you said, and maybe I don't know if you said it tied to Charles, but I think you said it tied to sustainable use, is that you guys. You know, there were a lot of people that had narrower definitions of of sort of their outlook. Mm. You wanted to be more general in your outlook. And you said that if it was legal, 
And if it was sustainable, you were pro it, right? Mm. Yeah. Now that's exactly. Did anything in your in your hold on in your group? Did does did anybody have any conversations about like? I, I hate to use the word ethics because ethics are so subjective, yeah. right? It's it's almost like personal preference. Mm. Did anybody say anything about like respect? Because to me, I think that's a better term, like respect of the wildlife. Did that come into to the decision making process? So, to a large degree, each of each of those major organisations that we pulled in were sitting with their own, uh, let's say, uh, unique sets of problems within the space. And again, I think we were fortunate as Charza in that none of that was vested really within Charza. We were not worrying. Mm. We were not breeding animals intensively. We were not expanding the Calaverian phenotypes that was being done. We were not, our members were not particularly hunting the captive bred lions at the time because exporting them mm. to the US was still relatively easy. So their prices remained high at that stage. So it wasn't something mm. local South Africans generally did. But that didn't stop us as Charza saying, we can't allow all of these things to be systematically destroyed by naysayers from our side, from within the, the hunting fraternity. If that stuff needs to be managed, we need to manage it as hunters. But what, what sparked my interest, particularly in the lion debate, was when some outfitters that had outrage about the captive bred lion industry were calling on government to come and intervene. And I know one thing about government. You invite them in, you can't get them out. And they're not going to stop at the point mm. you want them. So I always took the view that, hold on a second, if there's something to be cleaned up within the hunting fraternity, we should discuss it. That's what our associations are for. But when you start standing mm -hmm. on a pedestal and getting your photo in the local Sunday newspaper, calling for government interventions and thinking it's going to happen in fine slices that suits your narrow narrative, that doesn't make sense to me. And that's when I started to, to pay attention to these issues. Um, and from that perspective, we as Charza, we've got a very robust method of decision-making in Charza in that our, our associations come together three times a year for board meetings. And with 23 associations, each sending somewhere between one and four representatives, generally speaking, it's quite a full room with quite a lot of different thoughts and a lot of diversity. Um, sure, so sure. we can have good debates on these things, and we did, and lots of views and all that. But we eventually came up with policies that said this would accept, this would be acceptable to us as Charza, in that we will find ways for things to be done and managed by hunters for hunters. And on the lion thing in particular, we took a view that breeding of game for the purpose of hunting it is happening all over the globe. It happens mm -hmm. to the tune of 50 million released pheasants a year in the United Kingdom. So it's all a question of degrees. Where will the hunter that understands what he's buying from the producer draw his line? And that's the line that we should promote as being the thing to be understood. So for our, to my mind, the biggest uh, crime that the canned lion hunting fraternity ever did was hoodwink the buyer, the, the, the incoming American client, selling him something he didn't know mm. what it was. That was the issue for mm. me. And uh, provided the entire process is transparent and the lion is bred in circumstances that meet certain 
standards and the releases done in a certain way. I take the caveat mTOR approach, let the buyer beware. If that's what the man wants to purchase and all else is fine, then we should defend that practice. When it starts hoodwinking or selling something that it is not, that's that's fraud. And that occurs mm-hmm. in all industries. So those are, that's the kind of way we de- deliberated over this for some for some time to come up with our standards. And then you bring the word ethics in. And we had a dealing with it. There's a, there is a, a long-standing definition of what constitutes fair chase. I can't quote it off the top of my head. But sure, it's sure, a sure. well-known definition that dates, I think, to the 90s that, that a few organizations wrote. And we looked at that and I said, that kind of makes sense. But within the South African context, fair chase is also a peculiar thing to define because this piece of ground might have a certain nature when you hunt it. And another piece of ground has a different nature altogether and a, and a far larger piece of property might give you the same sense of fair chase or that animal's ability to naturally escape or whatever. So even that starts to become a fuzzy gray line if you want to prescribe it. So again, rather educate your hunters to understand the nuances and to appreciate or uh, let's say aspire to something rather than to try to dictate it down to them. But by having as much information and, and let's say wisdom of the old ways and all that, I'd love to go and hunt in Tanzania if I had the, the money for it, but I can't. So if ever I'm going mm-hmm. to hunt a buffalo or I'm going to hunt a lion, it's probably going to be a bred buffalo or lion in a South African context. That's what's available mm-hmm. to me and most people that I know in this context. Neither of those two things should be excluded, but they are different products. Sure. They're very different products. Sure. And they command different pricing, but I don't think either one of them is less legitimate than the other. Stephen, did anything, did the social come into play at all in that decision-making process? Because I think in today's social media age and, you know, the fact that, you know, even though we don't like to to sort of acknowledge it at times, the social ecology, the social science space is growing. So the social license opinions. to do what we do. The, the, the social license to do what we do. Yeah, the social license to do what we do, right? And and lions specifically have that just that thing about them, right? We all understand that. There's even though even though we can sit here and say. We do the same thing with pheasants. We do the same thing with impala. We do the same thing with buffalo. It's not the same, even though it is the same, (laughs) practically. In the social context, it's not with lions. So I'll tell you what, we we looked at this, and then we, obviously the, the boogeyman side of this was everyone said, the world's against it, people are against it. Uh, We cannot defend Mm. this because the public are, are, the vast majority of the public is against it. Uh, we're very fortunate. Our, our current president, who was previous chairperson of Charza, is, is, uh, is, is a good research scientist He understand, and social research. And he said, you know, if you want to start making broad statements like that, if you haven't gone and done the research properly, you aren't going to get a, an honest reflection on that. And a case in point, to put it more practical, if you were to go stand on a street corner on any given day in downtown Chicago, you can go to a rich area or you can go to a less rich area. 
and managed to stop the passers-by and ask them without prompting them one way or the other their thoughts on that subject. The subject of mm-hmm. lion on lion hunting in Southern Africa, just generalities. Most of them won't mm-hmm. even know it's happening. Mm-hmm. Correct. And that actually is the is the is the target market for the antis and the target market for us. Is how do you take the absolutely Correct. disconnected, non-involved people? Hundred percent. Not let them become anti. Correct. And in actual fact, almost all of the social media noise, including the Cecil the Lion issue, which by the way was never about a captive lion, although the anti-captive people turned that story very quickly in their favour. Um, sure. If you really looked at it, the most aggressive of it was still in numbers games, very few people involved on a global scale. There were storms in teacups in social media all around. Facebook is a big problem for us because people can, you can get sucked in to a debate. And if you look at it, it could be in a group where there may be 3,000 people on the group. There may be 60 people participating in the, deb- in the debate. And you might assume there might be three or 400 people lurking and reading. And you're thinking you're making a difference. You're actually mm-hmm. just wasting a lot of your life having a hell of a fight and a debate, a debate in a space that is not going to change a single thing that you as Fish and Wildlife or Backyard our Department of Environmental Affairs or with an airline trophy ban, for example, where you, you need to deal with those things in a completely different way in marketing. And you need to deal with them scientifically, business-like, and absolutely you need to put your best foot forward socially when you get your toe in the door to present your case. You have to be there. Uh, well equipped to deal with the people in a professional manner, but you can't be. You, we, we can't be allowing ourselves to be kept on being drawn into the social media noise to the degree mm. we are. Um, we're wasting. We, we're generating a lot of heat and and zero light in that space. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we also said, you know what? Let's get ourselves together and let's focus on where policy is made. And let's focus where where science is relevant and where it isn't yet relevant, where it should be. Let's fight for that. And these are the places like CITES. It is the places like the IUCN. And, of course, now they've just had the COP for the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity. These things matter to us far more. And mm. it's where we need to really put resources in on a global scale and, and, t- and tie ourselves in with other sustainable use elements in the world. So we collectivize and we share the load with them. And that was the eye-opener for us now at CITES is to see just how many other issues have exact parallels to us. And yet we've never noticed. So, Stephen, talk to me talk to me a little bit about so we CITES just happened in Panama. What were the what were the big things that you went in looking to accomplish, conversations that you wanted to have, and what were the outcomes of those? Um, as a relatively new crew or new kid on the block, Suko, we had some experience. Some of us had been at the CITES in, the, in Joburg in 2016, but really just on a superficial level. Some of our guys had been to the previous conference of the party, which happened in Switzerland in 2019, two or three of them. But this time around, what we wanted to do was hold the fort, establish ourselves, and, and build relationships and understand the space, start a process. And we went in the end with a delegation of six, which was quite a big delegation, and with extended 
relationships. That delegation quickly grew to relationships. In the end, our pro-sustainable use uh, WhatsApp group with other international causes started to number, I think, 40-odd individuals, which is the first time that's ever been achieved on the pro-utilization side in CITES, to, to our knowledge. And it was largely driven by the SUCO model that we took and quickly showed off there, a along with Eugene Lapont's IWMC grouping, which he had people from the shark industry, had people from the pet trade industry. Um, we had the parrot breeder guy from South Africa as part of us, very knowledgeable organization in terms of CITES issues, um, timber interests around the globe. So when you started to add all of these things together and, and learn from each other, it, it, that was what we wanted to achieve and how we got that right. We really, really got that right. And then the other thing was to be relevant and noticed uh, and asked to speak. And I would pretty much say that there wasn't a time that we put our hand up for an intervention in any of those sessions, the committee meetings or the uh, plenaries where we didn't get our turn to say our say. Um, it was a good, it's a good name to take to CITES, the Sustainable Use Coalition of Southern Africa. Sounds a lot better than the wildlife ranch or the professional hunter or this or that. Sure, sure, and, sure. Um, our branding was good. We'd made sure we, we looked the part, all of us, the, uh, you know. And so we got all of that stuff right. We've come away with good allies. We were noticed by the officials of CITES. We are fortunate in that there's a few senior staff members in the CITES Secretariat that have South African-based knowledge and info, so that assisted us. We had our own government people there who realized that we were properly there in support this time, and although our government's sitting a little bit wishy-washy at the moment on issues, um, they quickly recognized that, hold on a second, there's a South African-based NGO that we can rely on. This That stretched to the rest of the Southern African SADC countries. They actually landed up using our facility in the mornings to have their, their morning SADC uh, strategic meetings because they never had a place. And we had, with our collective, mm. we'd arranged to rent office space for the purpose in the, in the building, which our Southern African mm. government then had to, or governments had to lean on and utilize. So these were good things. That, that means that we've we built our brand, we, we've proven our credentials. Uh, we did take part in a number of the working groups that were created. They create these inter um, between the two plenaries. They create working groups to deal with nitty gritties, um, technical stuff that can't be dealt in a room with two thousand people in it. And we put sure. our hands up for a number of those, and we made differences there as well, and built relationships there, even on a global scale with other government uh, representatives from the UK and Australia and Canada and other places. So I think we got all of that type of stuff right. I've got a we did a short article when I got when we got back about it, and I'll share that with you, and you maybe want to share it out on some of your your uh, media as well, uh, saying what we had had achieved there. And what we will do is keep the momentum going because the big work is done between the the conferences of the parties. Those are every three years, but they have animal committee and plants committee, and um, the, uh, what do they call it, the working committee meetings constantly between these conferences of the parties. So we'll stay engaged now and we will ensure that we, we become more of an effect. 
And of course, we had allies in our mix that are old campaigners there, such as SCI in particular and uh, mm-hmm. Jackson's uh, Conservation Force. Uh, mm-hmm. Old friends and old travelers, but we were there, I would say, at an elevated level that suddenly we were bringing our side more than being piggyback uh, riders there. Mm-hmm. Uh, made quite a difference. Yeah, and it's, it's funny how... Not it's not funny. It's probably in very it's very very intentional that you've gone beyond hunting, right? You've gone to a much broader canvas, a much broader umbrella, which is general sustainable use. Uh, specifically, like in my brain, I don't know why it's stuck there, but the South African Falconry Association. It's the sustainable use of being able to go and capture wild falcons and utilize them in a falconry type context without diminishing, hurting the wild falcon population and even to a point of like, you know, from a even from a hunting perspective, making sure that those populations are sustainable and increasing in the future. Yep. Fal- falconry is a wonderful success story on a global scale. Um, the International Falconry Federation, uh, of which uh, our current chairman of, of uh, South African Falconry Association, Dr. Adrian Lombard, has been the previous president of that, and he's done tremendous work on a global scale. But the thing that they got right as falconry is they've had UNESCO declare it an intangible human heritage activity. So you've actually now got United Nations um, protection at the UNESCO level for for the art of falconry on a global scale. Now, that's a tremendous thing to have gotten right, and it took some doing on their part, and they worked many years on it. Um, but that's the kind of thing that we should be looking at for 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 these activities of ours. Yeah, sheesh! Could you imagine UNESCO looks in, at hunting and says that's an indelible human yeah. lifestyle characteristic? Uh, my, my, you know, there's the Afrikaans say, saying "my copras." My, my head, my head is full of noise with that with that concept uh-huh. for some years now. Since since I found out about that back in about 2015 or so can't quite remember but you know i've been thinking about hunting and i know you've done a few shows where you've asked people what make what makes you hunt why why does it tick mm. and uh, obviously mm. i've spent more than my fair share of life on that topic in my own head and one of the things i'm damn convinced of you'll go along i don't have anything other than a gut feel it's 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 not the kind of science you can prove but if you look at the oldest known arts and artifacts, how it celebrates hunting, I think the oldest known cave pictures that depict a hunting scenario are something like 80,000 years old, which is eight times older than agriculture, for instance. But I'm damn sure that the oldest intangible human heritage activities would arguably be hunting, dancing, and the drumbeat or music. And I'm pretty mm. damn sure that the drumbeat and the dance emanated from failed or successful hunts. I think it, uh, <laughs> it started with mm. the hunt. Um, <laughs> the, somewhere along the line, that brought people together and started the responsibility of tribalism and the coming together. And it, I cannot believe there's an older human heritage activity than the hunt. I I I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that the I think you're right. The singing, dancing probably came from a celebratory event. Yep. Or a or a melancholy one if it went wrong. 
or melancholy failure, someone died or something like that, you know? No, it's, uh, you're right. So we just need to figure out how to translate that into, hey, this is the, the oldest human, you know, piece of human heritage and needs to be protected. I'm damn sure it wasn't because someone found a pumpkin that day. <laughs> stop it. Absolutely stop it. You're terrible. Listen, as we, as we close this, I, I know, and, and you said this earlier, which is, was very poignant of you. I would be, you know, the way that Blood Origin sits is that I think any sort of social media engagement is a positive social media engagement. If we don't say, if we don't put our positive seed in there, then, yeah. you know, I agree with you, though, that, you know, spending two hours going back and forth with, um, let's just name one of them, because we know the, the typical offenders are just a Kruger of the world on Facebook. You're never going to change her mind. And it's just going to be, you know, you, you're blowing hot smoke yeah. there. But it tends to be that both hunting and anti-hunting are very, very loud in the social media space. Are you optimistic about where we're going, um, Stephen, in terms of sustainable use, in terms of hunting and how that wraps into social media? Uh, I am by nature an optimistic person. But I do have this this feeling in my gut a little bit of doom and gloom uh and it's look I, I work at the rock face and seeing on a daily basis information on such things as the animals abroad's bill that they're busy with in the uk where they want to ban trophy imports and anything around that type of stuff and you wonder mm -hmm. how on earth are we going to change that tide and it's wonderful to see some of the top-notch non-hunting scientists in particular but some people with good argumentative skills and whatnot coming out in our favor there um like prof amy dickman and others that have done wonderful work but i i still wonder whether the groundswell of 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 urban i would i wouldn't like to say opinion because i don't think they have an opinion but what is perceived as the urban opinion isn't going to just eventually swell over us um, mm. Will we adapt? I think we will, because I think the hunting imperative is so deep in people that they will overcome the challenges. A trophy import might result in the trophy not being the big deal anymore in hunting, but people will still have the desire to hunt. The fact that you then throw All away the advantage right? of, the, of the taxidermy industry and the value add and all that, that it brings is to me just sad and foolish. But <laughs> I think there's a hell of a war on the go in this regard. And who's going to win out in the end is hard to say. Um, I always try and look at it from a global perspective and say that you can. we need to understand the environment we're in. For example, today, waiting for this podcast, we've been, I've been keeping a sharp eye on our ruling party that was discussing or, in fact, electing their new leadership for the next five years. And literally, I got that result half an hour or so before we started this conversation. And, well, I think the, the world is facing this. We got the best of the bad lot. And I can now take some sense of what the future holds for us here and who my government is going to be for the next five years based on, on today's outcome. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, I think, goes with you in the States there. You're looking at this fight. It's a knife's edge. 
the, the split between the Democrats and the Republicans. And, but that 1% swing one way or the other completely changes policies of things like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. It takes a while for it to filter through, mm-hmm. but it completely changes things. And we need to work in these environments all the time. And we need to be as dynamic as those environments force us to be. Um, so in the social media space, the toothpaste out the tube. We, I'd love to have said 30 years ago that we should start a policy of hunters keep it real, don't go into anything virtual. Isn't going to happen. And of course, particularly the Americans are very protective of their First Amendment rights as well. They, they feel they, they have every right to put everything out there. Um, and mm-hmm. possibly in actual fact, that might work in our favor in the future because I think a hell of a lot of stuff eventually just numbs the public out there. So everyone who presses a like button thinks they've made their contribution. And that becomes the beginning and the end of the fight, maybe. And everybody actually still gets on with what they were doing beforehand. That might be an outcome that social media um, tedium kills the threats we are facing and we eventually get on with doing things a little bit normally. I don't know where where this thing goes to next. Um, But reality on the ground, I know one thing. The world will be really worse off if hunting is severely severely curtailed. The world will be worse off. Not hunters, the globe. Um, mm-hmm. But we understand that, and unfortunately, we're probably telling that to an audience that fully understands that. Uh, how we get this across? Well, I don't. I don't think we. I don't think our audience fully understands that, and that's again one of the the key points from a blood origins perspective. And I, I agree with you. There's a one percent swing probably in most cases for most things all around the world, and I think social media has a huge role to play in that one percent swing. And I think that message is key in that 1% swing. What would, be, and what would be for me very nice is that if we could educate the hunting fraternity, and this should really 100%. start with the, with the outfitters and, 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 the, and the ranch owners and all that in, our, in the context I understand, yeah, but I'm sure similar in the States as well, is that we tend, not to, we, we tend to forget the sizzle when we sell the steak on social media. So the picture of the mm-hmm. result the animal you've now bagged is a very, very small part of the whole story. And we, 100%. And we don't tell the rest of that story well uh, or at all. Um, all the benefit flows, all the, 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 the camaraderie ship, yeah. the, 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 the work that's given, the food that's been eaten by locals or yourself. We should have more cooking and brying, barbecuing shows. Um, far more than just the animal that was achieved in the social media space. And, Hal, if we can start getting that right, I think things will change a little bit as well in our favor. Stephen, you must have been like some sort of extraterrestrial looking into my plenary presentation that I gave, my keynote presentation that I gave to custodians, because after my presentation, the old buggers of the room, the ones that didn't grow up with social media, right? The ones that were just like, I refuse, came up to me and they said, I get it now. And the entire part of the, the whole point of my presentation was we have for 30 years focused solely on the action that is hunting. When we have forgotten about the benefits and consequences of that action. And if we can change 
what we put out on social media. You don't have to completely ignore the action because I get it. It's a business and that is yeah. the marketing component of the business. But if you just change it to 40% or 60% benefit and consequence, can you imagine what the perception around hunting yep. would become? In the social media age that we live in today, that's only going to get more influential. This, you know, I, I once put it to a, a meeting and it, was, it went down quite well. And, I'll, uh, and I'm going to take a... I'm going to take a flying chance and tell, tell my thinking here on this podcast. If you look at one of the biggest industries in the world uh, is your fashion and luxury goods industry. And the whole premise of that is to make yourself look good and be something and up your game, the beauty industry and all those things that go with it. What is the end game there? It's a relationship building exercise, whether it's a fickle relationship of a one night stand or whether you're looking for your permanent life partner or whatever it is. That's what it's about. And what is the what is the finished product there? It's sex. But we tell that whole story, but we don't show the penetrative sex on social media. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the dead animal with the blood. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with it. It's legit. In fact, it's necessary for us to carry on as a species. Mm -hmm. The most essential of everything. But that part doesn't have to take pride of place in the whole story. Jeez, mm. everyone just like, uh, their mouths are dropped. <laughs> Stephen Palos, the CEO of Charles, are talking about fashion and yeah. intercourse. Decide <laughs> which, which part of the hunt is the, is the, the hardcore porn and which part of it is the, the whole sizzle with the steak. Um, 100%. And that might help us a little bit into the future. But I don't yeah, want I to take away a guy's privilege or guy or girl's privilege and right to also show that success when they've hunted well. I think that uh, I think the world has been unfairly Yeah, and we're not apologizing for it either, right? I think the world has been unfairly brutal in particular to the lady huntresses that have, that have done so well. Um, there's some tremendous ladies that have come and hunted and, and do so much other good around their hunting when they come. They do, I mean, they, they tend to get their hands involved in social responsibility programs and things, and they are gutted by the anti-hunting people. Mm -hmm. They're seen as low-hanging fruit, and it's so unfair. So um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let's see what we can do. But uh, I think we've got to look at the big picture stuff a little bit at the moment and throw our resources at that. Yep, 100%. Well, Stephen, it's been a pleasure, my man. Um, Thank you, Robbie. If, if, we can, if we can do anything for you, obviously Blood Origins is here as you know, a way to create content and message on the things that are good that are happening out of hunting and, and, and the good that come from hunters. And so please don't hesitate. You have my WhatsApp number now. Yep. Um, you can't reach me in the middle of the night, as you know now. I've got my Do Not Disturb on. So... Um, but please don't hesitate to use it, and uh, I hope this is the first of, of many conversations. Yeah, indeed. I'll, I'll send you those articles if you want to share them out uh, that we did about CITES for starters, and uh, sure. uh, we'll definitely stay in touch. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, at this time of the year, may you and yours have a blessed and wonderful Christmas, which is just around the corner. Yes, sir. Thank you. You take care there. And carry on doing the great work you're doing. Yes, sir. Thank you. Much appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. 
I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.